You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Isaiah 55, verses 1-13. through 13. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. For our New Testament reading, turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, verses 13 through 53. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, Answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, And besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going far further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent." So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. 
As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they, had, thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they, were still, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do what this text explains. God, that you would open our eyes to behold marvelous things in your word. That you wouldn't keep from us the ability to see Jesus. Rather, you would grant it, you'd give it by your spirit. That we'd behold him, that we would trust and believe the scriptures And then, God, that we would order our lives, our lives would be reordered accordingly. Come and now bless your word. May it bear fruit among your people. May it bear fruit in our city. May it bear fruit for the nations. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, We continue this week, our final week. Uh, Next week we'll actually be moving into a, a series of weeks studying on the, the concept of authority or the question of who's in charge. Uh, but this week we begin, um, we, we end our uh, four-week kind of foray through the Gospels and their accounting of um, Jesus' last weeks on earth. Um, and and I, I want us to come back to this central idea that we began um, all these four weeks with. Um, and it is essentially this, that everything in the Christian life, everything, which is to say everything in life itself, Um, be it marriages, be it raising children, be it the work um, that you've been called to, your particular vocation each week, uh, be it how you relate to your neighbors, all of it flows from this first and central thing. This is the fountain um, from which every single other part of our lives, every other part of our obedience, every other part of who we are in this world and who we're called to be comes from beholding, believing in or trusting in and delighting in Jesus Christ. It's the center of everything. So we need to talk about things like um, uh, on Friday night when the guys get together, we need to talk about how, how, do, you, just, how do you be a good husband? How, how do you shepherd and care for and lead a, a wife? And we're going to get into like techniques and how do you do that well? But, but if that's not grounded, if that's not flowing directly out from a delight in Jesus a trust in who Jesus is, um, the, the ability to behold him, then it's, it's going to be a complete waste of time. And so it is with everything else. You were made to see, to trust, to delight in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, and, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed or changed into his likeness. The, the, the grounds of all personal holiness, 
the, the grounds of all personal obedience is seeing, and trusting, and delighting in Jesus. But more than that, that the grounds of all cultural transformation, the grounds of the renewal of all things, that the grounds of the nations themselves being brought into obedience and submission to King Jesus is this, seeing, trusting, and delighting in Jesus Christ. That's why we've spent these four weeks in particular looking at, just trying to examine who is this Jesus, how how do we, how do the gospel writers describe him to us? And so we come now to Luke, our last one, Um, and uh, I want to again do the same thing we've done with the other ones, is established uh, a broader context, kind of what's the framework that Luke is working from? So when we arrive to chapter 24 and we start looking closely at a handful of things that take place um, in this chapter, what, what's the larger framework for what's going on in the Gospel of Luke? And so I have one big idea uh, and, and then two um, themes that kind of develop out of that idea um, or kind of undergird that idea in, in the rest of Luke's Gospel. And so the first um, is... Luke and Acts, the book of Acts and the book of Luke, belong together. Um, There's all kinds of literary themes that are developed through both of those those books. Uh, There's there's lots of reasons to to know that, hey, Luke is written with Acts in mind. Acts is written with Luke in mind. Um, There are kind of literary themes that are interwoven um, into both of them. Um, And we're going to see one of those in just a minute. But, But the um, the, the big idea is you need to understand that Luke is writing these books into a particular context and a particular history and a moment in which the church exists in Roman cities, is getting established in Roman cities. I um, mean, he's telling the story of um, the work of Jesus and the continuing work of Jesus in the church. And, and there's a handful of things going on um, at the time historically in these cities um, that Luke is, Luke is trying to inform or tell us about um, through this gospel writing. And, and it's essentially this. Everywhere the church goes, everywhere Paul goes as he plants churches, you see this pattern established in the book of Acts. Um, Luke wants us to know, hey, this is, this is a pattern. This is happening over and over and over again. And it's because this problem gets far, far worse um, after the book of Acts ends um, before it ever gets better. And that's simply this, is that um, the church goes, the gospel is proclaimed in a city. Paul begins with the Jews, always begins in a synagogue. Um, he's generally rejected in the synagogue uh, most of the time, um, at least um, rejected by the people who have power um, in the synagogue and in, in the Jewish community. And then he goes uh, and begins to preach the gospel among Gentiles. Um, the Gentiles generally hear this good news um, gladly, although there's a handful of places where they hear it skeptically. Um, I'm thinking particularly in, in the book uh, in Athens in Acts 17. Um, and then what happens is, um, and what develops historically is uh, the, the, the Jewish community that had rejected um, the message of the gospel begins to persecute the church, co- go after the church, um, every, almost everywhere in the Roman Empire where the church is established. So historically, a rivalry develops uh, particularly in that first century, um, as the church gets going, as it gets established, uh, the Roman government didn't allow kind of these outlier religions um, except for uh, Judaism. Um, and so they would, uh, they would allow the, uh, the, the Jewish synagogue to gather. They would kind of exempt them from emperor worship and a hand, uh, mostly um, and a handful of other things. Um, and, and for the first part of, of the church's history, Rome just kind of presumed the church is a part of that Jewish movement. It's kind of a weird Jewish sect. Um, and so one of the fundamental things that the, uh, um, the, the non-Christian Jews began to do was then accuse the Christians, uh, make really, really clear to the Romans, hey, these, these people aren't like us. They're not following the same religion as us. Um, you actually need to be arresting them. You actually need to be shutting them down. And so that division um, is taking place in every city, and this is causing massive problems for the church. Um, problems that we begin to see kind of more fully develop 
in the first couple of chapters in the book of Revelation as John is addressing, Jesus through John is addressing very specific issues in churches that all essentially stem from a kind of pressure being put on the church by Rome um, because of uh, their rejection, um, the, the, the Jewish synagogues, the Jewish community's rejection of um, the Christians, the both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in these Roman cities. And so that problem develops. And in and, and Luke, you see that division um, coming really, really early. You'll remember, uh, if you were here about a year ago, we talked about how um, there's even kind of two communities um, in Israel at, at the time of Jesus' own ministry. You have uh, really what's happening in the north in Galilee. Um, there you have kind of this entrepreneurial um, economy developing. You have a politics in the north that largely um, hates two groups of people. They hate the Romans and they hate all of the authorities, um, all the Jewish authorities around um, Jerusalem and in Judea. Um, and, and so they're just kind of wanting to, to kind of, oh, sell their trades, um, live in the trade routes where they are. Um, and, and they are largely de- receptive to the message of Jesus. They're largely receptive to the coming of Jesus. Um, and, and where Jesus runs into trouble um, is down south. And down south, I mean, you have a very, very different economy. Um, down south, the economy is really built on um, unjust taxes. It's built on uh, um, really corruption um, in the deepest way. Uh, a, a kind of um, indebtedness that, that, that builds, uh, that traps people in, in um, patterns of slavery, slavery to debt, and ultimately slavery to land um, at, that's owned by people in power who are doing favor for the Romans. They're kind of in... Um, in cahoots with the Romans, and they resist very, very early the message of Jesus. Um, Jesus has his harshest words to say, uh, particularly about money and those kinds of things when he's in Judea as opposed to when he's in Galilee. In other words, in Jesus' own ministry, unfolding and, and seen most clearly in the book of Luke, you can also see it in Matthew, um, you really have two Judaisms, two different responses to the message of Jesus, to, to the person of Jesus, I mean, you have the North, which is largely receptive to Jesus, and then you have what's happening in the South, and what's happening around Jerusalem, what's happening around the temple authorities, and the religious authorities, and the political authorities of the time, um, who are deeply rebellious. They, they do not like the message of Jesus. They're constantly trying to keep it in check. Um, and, and Luke kind of interweaves that story, and, and, and really, at the end of the day, that's the exact same thing that's happening in miniature um, everywhere the gospel goes in the book of Acts. You have a small group of, of, of Jews who hear the gospel and respond positively to it. Um, you have those who are in power, those who are in cahoots with the Roman authorities, um, with the city authorities who have a lot to lose by confessing that Jesus is Lord, who, who reject the message and try to squash the message and are um, envious of, of what's happening with the message um, and do everything they can to shut down um, the ministry and the work of the early church. And so Luke is writing his gospel to a Gentile audience and he's essentially giving kind of this historical background to explain what that Gentile audience is seeing in all of the cities they live in. You're a Gentile, you don't know much about Christianity, you've heard a little bit about it, it's caused a bunch of controversy and you're looking out and you're seeing this, this community of Jews and Gentiles gathering to worship a Jewish Messiah, a Jewish king, claiming that he died on the cross for people's sins and he rose again from the grave and that he lives now as Lord of everything, that he is king, he is the new Caesar, the one ruling all of the earth. And then what you're seeing is um, the, the kind of the accepted Jewish leadership, the, the ones who've been there forever, the ones who are in power, rejecting that message, hating that message, actually going after, um, particularly going after Jewish Christians who are preaching that message, teaching that message, um, living and abiding by that message, and trying to get the Romans to go after these people. And so you're looking at that. Let's say you're not a Christian at the time. You're looking at that, and it doesn't make much sense, right? Like it's a, it, it raises questions that actually require answers. If, if the ones who actually know the Old Testament, these, these Jewish leaders, the ones who've been in our city um, teaching this stuff for a really long time, um, look at the me- hear the message of Jesus, look at the story of Jesus, and say, this is actually a dangerous sect and it should be put down, th- then you need some sort of explanation for why is this then true? Why should we believe this? 
But Luke is giving an explanation for that. And he's essentially saying, look, like, there's always been this division um, among the Jewish people. And, and here's my answer for why that division exists and why you're seeing this rejection take place. So that then is expressed, expressed in a number of different ways in the book of Luke, but two different themes are going to be pertinent to Luke 24. Um, first is Luke takes up from the very, very get-go um, his genealogy of, of Jesus, kind of where Jesus has come from, is different than the other gospel writers in that he, he goes all the way back to Adam. So he describes Jesus as a son of Adam, which then plays out Luke's favorite title for Jesus throughout the whole of his gospel is son of man, which is simply son of Adam. Um, that there is, um, at, the, at the root of what Luke is, is, is doing, is he's telling a story um, that's not just, again, the story of the Jews. Um, it's not just even like John, kind of a story of uh, the fulfillment of all of these Jewish promises that have um, universal consequence. Um, he's going all the way back to say, this is the story of mankind. This story actually supersedes um, Jewish concerns. It's, it's bigger than even just um, the, the, um, the, the particular promises of the Old Testament. This is the story of mankind and God's redemption of mankind. What's, what's fascinating too is, is Luke's favorite title there of Son of Man um, is, uh, is used in Daniel chapter 7. I actually had a, um, I had a teacher one time who he told us, if you're ever in our, my class and you don't know the answer, just say Daniel 7. So if I ever ask you a question, you don't know the answer, just say Daniel 7. Um, and, and the idea there in Daniel 7 is it speaks of this mysterious son of man figure. Uh, Daniel 7 was an extremely like, popular text, I would say, among the kids. Um, uh, in Jesus' day, it was the story, the promise uh, of the coming of this son of man figure who, who would come and, and come before God, God would present him with this authority, authority to rule over heaven and earth and to conquer all of God's enemies. So what's fascinating in this title, Son of Man, is you have this linkage to Adam himself, this idea that Jesus comes as the second Adam. He comes as the new man, the new humanity, um, to to be what Adam always um, failed to be, what Adam from the very beginning failed to be. And you have this connection to um, Jesus as the one who comes um, being given all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the one who undoes, conquers, destroys all the enemies of God. So this theme gets developed. You see, if you, if you want to see connections, further connections with Daniel 7, um, if you go to Acts 2 and Revelation 5, I mean, you, you can see in Acts 2, particularly Luke, uh, linking these ideas and then Revelation 5, uh, as, um, uh, as many of you know, as we talked about, um, at Revelation 5 is simply kind of the flip side of what's taking place in Acts chapter 2. You, you see, the, here's what's happening in the heavenlies um, as the Son of God, the Son of Man, um, Jesus takes his throne and pours out his spirit. Um, and then Acts 2 is, okay, on the other side um, of the heavenly veil, this is what that looks like. It looks like the spirit of God being poured out on the disciples. But at the, at the center of Luke's message, um, as he's uh, kind of explaining this division, trying to give an explanation for who is this Jesus and why should you believe in Jesus, um, is he's telling a story about the recreation of the whole world. Um, that, that ultimately this isn't just about Israel and it's certainly not just about the Jews. Um, this is the story of a world being remade, of a humanity being reestablished. Israel has played a part in that. Israel actually was a, um, another type of Adam, another son of man, another son of man who failed. As Adam fails in the garden, um, uh, Israel fails at the base of Mount Sinai, um, worshiping a golden calf. But Adam, um, but Luke tells us a story in the coming of Jesus that is about the remaking of all things. Third, um, Luke's gospel, a number of people have noted, is uh, it's a a journey story. Um, One of the decisive moments in the book of Luke um, uh, says that Jesus turned his face or he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The whole story of Luke um, and the book of Acts is a movement towards something and then towards something else. Um, it, it's about 
uh, uh, essentially a, a really long, weird road trip. So in, in the book of Luke, you see a movement from Nazareth to Galilee, to Judea, to Jerusalem. Um, and then in the book of Acts, you see a movement from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to Rome, and the promise that the gospel would go to the very ends of the earth. And at the heart of this kind of movement, of, of this message, um, moving from place to place to place, kind of first moving to Jerusalem, and then from Jerusalem moving to towards Rome, is this idea that, that feasting is at the center of it. Um, that this feasting with God himself, feasting in the very presence of God, um, is central um, to, to the movement of what's happening in this place. In other words, feasting with God is moving from this, um, th- this place that was only in the temple to now it's being, um, first in the book of Luke, it's located around Jesus himself. Um, if you want to feast with God, you no longer have to merely go to the temple, um, this building in Jerusalem to worship. Now, um, no, you gather with the disciples, you gather with the followers of Jesus in the presence of Jesus, and this is where you worship. This is where you feast or eat with the living God. And then what develops in the book of Acts is now um, that Jesus has ascended to the throne and poured out the Spirit. Um, the, the Spirit now sends the disciples into the nations of the earth. And what you find happening as the gospel moves towards Rome and moves out into all the nations of the earth is that feast, that eating with God moves it moves with him. It's no, it's no longer merely attached to a person, um, but now it's attached to a people who believe in Jesus and are, and are filled with the very spirit of God. So, so watching or tracking how food works in the gospel of Luke is really, really important. It's actually going to be really, really important in Luke 24. And so with those themes established, that framework established, I want us to look at three things in Luke 24, uh, and, and then we'll be done. So first, you have three, and the three things that you notice is the three stories. We read the last two of them. Um, the first one begins in, in verse one of chapter 24. Um, and, and so all three of these develop um, three different themes, three different things that we should take hold of as we consider the question of who is this Jesus and what's happened, the resurrection. The first is you see this theme of the Son of Man developed again in the first story, in this first accounting in Luke 24. He's called the Son of Man, how the Son of Man um, uh, would be raised from the dead. And secondly, you see this further theme of on the first day of the week. And so we talked about in the Gospel of John, John wants us to know again, this is the first day uh, of the week. Luke is doing the same thing. Um, And linking again with all the way, uh, this is another similarity with the Gospel of John. If you go all the way back to Luke chapter 1, um, there he's given us a genealogy that comes from the very, very beginning um, with Adam. And so at the, at, the, at the heart of Luke's account of the resurrection, it's really, if you're to understand the resurrection at all, this is not merely kind of some sort of proof that, that um, Jesus is God. It's not merely uh, a proof that our sins have been dealt with and death has been dealt with. It's actually a declaration for all of the gospel writers that God has begun to remake the world. The goal of the resurrection of Jesus Christ um, is not merely to give you some sort of like butterfly feeling of hope. So when you come to church in East, on Easter and you have your nice Easter clothes on and you leave here happy eating barbecue and filled with a sense of good feelings. That's not the goal of Easter. The goal of Easter is to say that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He reigns over everything and now has begun the work of remaking the world. It's the heart of, of the message of Easter and Easter tide. Um, we looked at last week the fact that the resurrection of Jesus um, is used throughout the New Testament, uh, not again fundamentally as a proof of Jesus' um, Jesus' godness, or um, really even uh, merely a proof of justification by faith, it's used as a proof of his authority, and primarily his authority to rule and to judge. So at the center of Easter, at the center of, the, of Luke's accounting of the resurrection, and frankly, all the gospel writers' accounting of the resurrection, it is a declaration that Jesus Christ has begun to rule and as king, he is renewing, restoring, remaking all of the world. 
It's going to tie in with the themes that appear explicitly in Matthew and again, here in Luke, and then Luke kind of unfolds this more, more, full us in the book, more full, full, fully for us in the book of Acts, is that Jesus brings his authority to bear in calling all of the nations of the earth to obey him. So what do we do with this? Um, the, the reality is, in... in in this first story in the book of Luke, and it's, it, it occurs again for us in the second story, the whole world is being remade right in front of Mary, but right in front of these women who go to the tomb, right in front of, of John and Peter, and they can't see it. Um, I, I got into a uh, healthy argument with someone this week about whether or not like the world was actually being remade. He, he had, a, had a vision of the Christian gospel that was essentially like, you're supposed to believe some things, the whole world is going to hell in a handbasket, but don't worry, a day will come and you will get raptured out of this place and God will burn this place to the ground and then everything will be good. I thought that was horrible. Um, so we were in a nice discussion about that. And, and what occurred to me is like his, when we got actually into the kind of the, the brass tacks of the argument. For him, everything had to do with like anecdotal evidence, like looking at the world and saying, well, people are still dying. There's still diseases. There's all kinds of new crazy diseases. Um, he really liked diseases. I mean, didn't like diseases, but he, he knew a lot of diseases that he kept naming. Um, there's still wars being fought. There's still horrible things being done. Um, the, the, there's, there's just, it, the, the world is awful. It's, it's not being remade at all. It's just getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And it struck me as I was prepping for this, um, and we don't have time to get into full, full debate on what, what's unfolding in the world right now, but, but at the heart of it, what's fascinating to me is like, here's the disciples, and we're going to see it again with, on the road to Emmaus. They're, they're literally staring right at Jesus, they're staring at the, at the victory of God over death itself. And they don't see any of it. It says in this first story that, that they hear the message from the women. They, they, they talk to, to angels. Like, I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with an angel. But like, in my, I don't have any experience with it, but I just imagine that if you're talking to an angel and the tomb is empty and you might remember the fact that Jesus kept saying over and over and over again stubbornly um, that he was going to die and be raised on the third day um, and, and you're sitting there talking to an angel and he says that he's risen from the dead, like your default should be to like, okay, I'll believe you. Not, this sounds like craziness. Like, an, I, I, like I don't know, some, probably like some sort of like homeless angel. Doesn't know what he's talking about. He's got all kinds of problems. This is a crazy story. No, like you hear this story, you hear this news, the tomb is empty, you remember Jesus. I mean, and if Jesus tells you something, you should definitely believe it. Um, like, maybe it's a shady angel or something, but, but like, 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 you hear this message and you believe it, but they're, they're, they're hearing it told to them and they don't believe a word of it. They think it's a crazy story, a crazy tale. They don't know what to do with it, and they're terrified. They're still terrified. And and Jesus is going to say to them that they are slow to believe. They have dull hearts to believe all that God has said to us. I think oftentimes we, we... we look out at the world, we look at our own lives, we look at our kids, we look at our marriages, we look at whatever the situation is, and we are slow of heart to believe all the promises of God. All we believe is what we see, all we believe is what we think could be. In other words, we look out at the world and all we see is trouble and fear and kind of racing for our own comfort, our own safety, um, racing for, uh, uh, to, to, we, we just trying to keep our kids safe and keep things going, but we don't understand and lift our eyes to hear the promises of God that everything is being made new right now. 
The nations right now are being brought to heal. They're being brought to worship Jesus and obey Jesus. The righteousness and justice and goodness and mercy will have the last word. Death will not win. Sin will be absolutely overcome. That Jesus right now reigns with absolute authority over heaven and earth now. Not not someday. Again, like we talked about last week, this isn't some sort of Hail Mary pass um, that Jesus kind of pulls off in the last second of the game. No, he is driving the ball down the field. Sorry for the football analogies. Sometimes I get stuck in them. Um, He's driving the ball down the field and he's winning. And believing that and trusting that, despite what you feel, despite whatever rationalizations you might have, transforms um, people into just being radically committed to obedience, to joy, to laughter, to hope. So do not be slow to believe, dull of heart, to all that God has said to us, has promised for us, has accomplished life, death, the resurrection of Jesus and his reign right now. Raise your kids believing Jesus is Lord and that he reigns right now. Face down cancer Knowing Jesus Christ is Lord and that he reigns right now. Raise your children in the hope of the covenant promises of God. Calling them to believe and to obey and to delight in all that God is for them in Jesus Christ right now. And second, second story, the road to Emmaus. Which begins really funny. I don't know, I, I think it's funny. Um, so Jesus comes up to them, verse 17, and he said to them, what is this conversation you're holding um, with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Very sad. Then one of them, here's the funny part, one of them named Cleopas, um, you just want to know, like, I feel like Luke sometimes names people to, to mock them, like he's friends with them and he wants to make fun of them. Like, remember when you said this to Jesus? Like, answered him, are, the only, are you the only visitor? He, he says this to Jesus. This is why it's funny. Are you, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Can you imagine Jesus? Hmm, what things? <laughs> They tell him about himself. And interestingly, they call him a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And they describe again this division, this class of Jews who killed Jesus, not all the Jews, but particularly those in power in Jerusalem. The story goes on and and Jesus uh, then explains them. First he calls them uh, I mean, the, the translation really would be, you idiots. But it says, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. You're stupid and stubborn. But he then opens up and tells them the story of the Bible, tells them their own story, and tells them about himself. That all of them... Um, everything that's happened, everything that's unfolded um, in the story, in the promises, in the Psalms, um, the Old Testament beginning with Moses and all of the law. So, 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 so beginning with creation itself and working all the way through to all the promises of God says, um, don't you see this is how it had to go? Uh, don't you see this is all about Jesus and Jesus coming um, to live this life, to die this death, to be raised from the dead. This is all how God was going to fulfill his promises. They still don't see Jesus. He's standing right in front of them. Not only is he standing right in front of them, he's explaining the Bible to them. And they don't see him. And then they sit down 
and they see him. How do they see him? They sit down and they break bread. And they go on to tell the disciples, he was made known to them, he was revealed to them in the breaking of the bread. So we get the same point from the first story. Like he's standing right in front of you and you cannot see it and not believe it. But then how do you actually become those people who see it and believe it? Will you see it and believe it by hearing the word proclaimed? It says that their hearts begin to burn when he taught them the scriptures, when he unfolded the scriptures with Jesus at the center. And two, when they gathered around a table with Jesus to feast with God himself. Like this is how Jesus is revealed. This is how Jesus is known. And this is um, difficult for us because we, we like to think of Jesus and religion um, kind of, like we put it in the category of everything else. Um, and, and we've uh, grown up in a world where we think that the world can be examined and known and rationalized um, and that the, the we can kind of sit and, and decide based on evidence what's true or what's false or based on um, increasingly in our day just kind of what we feel about this thing um, and, and that will be enough. But what it says here is their hearts burned and they still didn't see him. Um, and in the end, like the way that you see and know Jesus is you gather at a table with disciples and you worship him. And this is, this is how God has always worked. At the heart of our sin is a refusal to come and worship God and give thanks to him. In other words, the, 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 the way that things are known scripturally are different than how we think about them in terms of uh, modernity or post-modernity. Modernity, it's all rational thought and argument and analysis. And in post-modernity, it's all feeling and, 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 and what your deepest self thinks. But in the Bible, it's no, you give yourself to this God, this God who's revealed himself in scripture. You gather in his presence to break bread, to worship. And then you can know then you can see. The heart of knowing this God and worshiping this God, in fact, at the heart of knowing anything about this world, it begins with feasting with God in his presence, with his disciples. So what do we do with that? We gather with the disciples to worship. We hear the scriptures proclaimed. We see the bread broken. And we know how the world is. Worship is central. And the whole world, the whole history of the world is about Jesus. And then last, Jesus comes to his disciples again. He eats fish, which one of my daughters would not like. And And then he again explains to them from the scriptures um, why this had to be, how this was going to come about. But the thing I want us to focus on um, is verse 46, this promise. It says, thus it is written that this Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power on high. So what does he do here? He eats with his disciples, proving to them, kind of giving them further evidence um, that this resurrection is not just an idle tale. Um, It's not just kind of some sort of spiritual ghost thing, Um, but this is real. He's eating fish. And then he commissions his disciples. He commissions us on a mission. He gives us a responsibility in this world and he gives us a responsibility to do three things, to proclaim or to bear witness to three things. One, the the death and the resurrection of Jesus. 
And so we as a people gathered in this space, um, we in every single facet and part of our lives declare central to everything else in the universe, um, the, the person of Jesus, um, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, what this world should see, what our city should see above everything else um, from us as a people, they, what they should hear centrally more than anything is, do you see and behold this Jesus? Um, this Jesus who lived, this Jesus who died, this Jesus who was raised, um, and this Jesus who reigns over all things. And then the result will be, and you see this pattern repeated by Luke in the book of Acts over and over and over again. Um, Paul declares who Jesus is. Um, the question comes back, and you even see this in, um, in Acts, with, when Peter proclaims who Jesus is, um, and then everyone responds like, what do we do? And then he calls them to repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this is, this is what we don't like. I think Christians right now in this particular cultural moment don't have a problem talking about Jesus. He's beautiful and good and glorious. At least most of Jesus, we don't have a problem talking about. But that's not what Jesus instructed us to do. He told us to talk about Jesus, but he also told us to proclaim repentance to call for repentance. And one of the things that's unfolded um, in kind of American evangelicalism, and I would say even in my own ministry in places, um, in previous churches, is to come and to say all the nice things, all the good things, all the desirable things about Jesus, but to never get to this particular moment and to say no. And because he is Lord, because he will judge the earth, you must repent of your sins. You see how we don't like that? Because it actually means naming sins that must be repented of. Sins that people really, really love and, and defining sins the way the Bible does, which will get you into crazy trouble. You'll be banned from Twitter. But Jesus has commissioned us as a people to go into the world declaring the glory, the majesty, the supremacy of Jesus over all things. Um, And then in the light of his supremacy, in the light of his glory, in the light of his reign, in the light of his work on the cross, to call men and women to repent of their sins and therefore to receive forgiveness for those sins. Oh, it's good news. But, But it's... This is the crazy thing about the gospel. It's good news that people hate because they love their sins. And Jesus has called us to go into the world to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. He reigns. Um, he's, He's lived the perfect life, fulfilling all the promises of God. He died on the cross, bearing our sins. He rose from the grave on the third day and has ascended all the way out of the grave to the right hand of the Father where he reigns and will come one day to judge the earth. So, repent of your lusts. Repent of your pride. Repent of your gluttony. Repent of your greed. Repent of your rage. Repent of murder. Repent of rebellion against all the law of God. That you might be forgiven of your sins. And if all you do is talk about how great Jesus is, and it never gets to repentance... You haven't obeyed Jesus. If you haven't told these are the actual sins that must be repented of, you haven't obeyed Jesus. You're not loving your neighbor. So let me say to all of you in this room, Maybe you've been a Christian a really long time. Maybe you're here because you're invited and you're not a Christian and you're like, what is this weird place? Jesus Christ comes as the absolute and total fulfillment of all the promises of God. He's good. He's glorious. He's um, 
He's the most interesting person who's ever lived. He's fascinating and glorious and he healed the sick and he cast out demons. He taught us what it means um, to obey the law of God and to walk according to God's will. And he did it perfectly and beautifully. And then he went to the cross and he bore our sins and he died. And three days later, he came out of the grave, physically came out of the grave. And he rose from the dead and he walked around and he ate fish. And he taught his disciples why this is how, how this all had to happen. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he right now reigns over all the earth. And all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And he is king and one day will come to judge the living and the dead. So you must repent of your sins. You must repent of your sexual sins. You must repent of your pride, of your lovelessness. You must repent of your arrogance, your hubris, and your greed of your self-righteousness. You must. But when you do, oh, he will forgive you. He will forgive you. He will wash you. He will receive you. He will pour out his spirit on you and you will be clothed with holiness and righteousness forever and ever and ever. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repent and believe this good news. Let's pray. So Father, on account of the work of Jesus, that we come to feast with you. We come to the breaking of bread, the drinking of wine, the feast you set before us as a people who are forgiven, who are washed, and who belong completely to Jesus Christ. So may we come now to this table believing, trusting, and because of this table, in the light of this table, and by the work of your spirit, seen. In your name we pray, amen.